gentlemen, welcome to another episode, uh, episode three of season two of Philosophy Can Ruin Your Life. I'm Brian Cook. Uh, with me tonight is uh, Frank Ruder. Frank is senior lecturer in philosophy at the University of Dundee. Uh, he's the author of Hegel's Rabble, an investigation into Hegel's philosophy of right. Um, uh, fairly recently in 2018, uh, but co-authored with Rebecca Comey called The Dash, or The Other Side of Absolute Knowing, and of a book that I think we're going to talk about quite a bit tonight, a truly remarkable book called Abolishing Freedom, A Plea for a Contemporary Use of Fatalism, published in 2016. I believe, uh, or at least the infinite wisdom of wikipedia tells me that frank seems to have uh published a number of works uh following up on this theme a work in, in german in 2018 on uh indifference and repetition and another uh, against freedom comedy and fatalism frank thank you so much for joining me and and welcome to philosophy can ruin your life <laughs> thank you very much for having me it's a pleasure Ah, uh, no, no, all, all mine, Frank, or, or perhaps our, our misery well, and well, despair will we, we be will, we, Yes, we will suffer both mutually. <laughs> yeah, that's, um. that's, that, yeah, that's as good as it gets, right? That's, that's a, kind of, a kind of friendship, a kind of redemption, maybe. <laughs> I, I agree. <laughs> um, all right, so uh, well, let's get this uh, mutual suffering show on the road. Frank, um, may I ask you, uh, how did... And it, it may seem odd to isolate a single ruinous factor when I could choose so many others. But how did philosophy ruin your life? Well, um, I anticipated that question, right? I mean, you informed <laughs> me that is it. Hence, um, <clears throat> why it is intricate is because there are so many good and true answers. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to sing about what I'm a 41-year-old German guy. Right yeah. now, sitting in a Scottish coastal town, uh, it's raining like hell. My family lives in Berlin, so I'm commuting, which kind of hell I commute. After <laughs> 20 years of studying, um, doing not only one PhD, but what kind of what the English-speaking world perceives as a second PhD, what the French and Germans call a habilitation. Yeah. And the only job I was able to find was one that basically uh, separates me from my from my family. And I'm nonetheless, I'm totally happy to, <laughs> doing uh, just like <laughs> taking a job, right? Um, because I sort of want to continue doing what I'm doing. Yeah, this I, I think this is how bad it is. Um, I consciously decided um, to not only ruin my life, but the lives of everyone around me since I started studying philosophy. My parents still think I'm kind of studying, I think, right now just in Scotland. <laughs> Wait, sorry, say that uh, again. Your parents... Uh, still think you're studying and what was what was the last thing you said sorry Frank. <laughs> no I, I think they they still assume that 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 I'm studying because they don't know why I continue reading right so so I'm from a worker's background so yeah. they, for, for, uh, so for them it's just like basically well you got all your degrees shouldn't you stop doing the study stuff part of your job and so they're they're very very irritated by me still <laughs> buying books and reading and so forth so it's basically they think i'm i'm a really really aging student um 
well, they basically never see me because uh, I'm in Scotland, right? Um, so yeah, I, I I think that would be my answer. So I'm not philosophy didn't only ruin my life. I mean, it did, but also <laughs> quite quite systematically the life of everyone um, who had had the slightest slightest uh, or more intimate relation to me. So yeah, yeah, and and yet I mean, you're talking about. I mean, obviously there were there are external factors that play a role in this in in this ruination of everyone's lives. Things about the uh, nature of the contemporary university and other things that I think we'll talk to. But in, implied in your response, I think is also the idea. I also have the sense that you would not. Uh, and I suppose because we're going to get to fatalism at some point, you might also say that you could not, but but you would not have chosen otherwise by the by the sound of anything, despite the horrendous consequences on yourself and others. Is is that fair to say? Or that, that's quite fair to say. Yeah. So the pain I and suffering I induce um, frequently and permanently on the on the on the let's say tiny and small world around me and the social life world as Husserl would have called it is is a conscious um, um, well maybe not a conscious but it is a decision that I would actually defend. So um, each time my wife uh, raises the question, why the fuck are you working in Scotland while we live in Berlin? So what are right. you doing? Right. I'm basically saying, yeah, that is kind of what I want to do, uh, <laughs> even though that sounds really wrong. Uh, but but um, kind of uh, I accept all the, let's say, um, and it, of course, it generates tremendous amounts of guilt, and everything gets worse and worse and worse. But um, I, I kind of accept um, this this kind of fate that struck me uh, by. I think my, if I you you know in your own own autobiography, you, one can very easily have the illusion that there is one moment where you can just like find the one culprit. I yes. think it was my it was my philosophy teacher in high school. He kind of he kind of, and it was a very tricky way in which um, he got me into this because he basically told me, if you want to see something really complicated, try to understand French neostructuralism. This is how the Germans called it back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought, great, um, the most the most complicated stuff. That's Totally for me. I'm going to make a career out of that. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm still suffering through the consequences. Yeah. There's, there's something so fascinating about this, right? Because I think uh, not to uh, homogenize your biography with those of uh, a, a lot of other people, but I, I think uh, I know, I, I suspect we both know many people who are in similar situations, like their lives are, are somewhat economically precarious, uprooted, um, uh, if we have working class backgrounds, there's a suggestion of, oh, you know, you, you went to uh, university and, and, and showed signs of being quite clever. Surely you should have uh, a good job by now uh, and, and so forth. It's had all of these ruinous effects uh, There are things you just despise about about the, and despair about in relation to the university and so forth. And yet there's still something from this this primal scene or whatever with your your philosophy teacher telling you about neostructuralism uh that made you um 
not only not only go down this road but continue to go down it as things get worse and worse and i suppose maybe for our listeners some of you i think i suspect will will find themselves in similar circumstances would you be able do you think to to try and identify what that thing is that keeps one pursuing something like this when it it clearly isn't something like pleasure or a or an something that is an obvious good perhaps it's charms are even in the in the very absence of being something like a uh i'm thinking of lacan on the service of goods that it seems like something not devoted to the service of goods or yeah i don't don't know how you want to approach that one but i i leave that one to you well I, I think that's kind of a difficult question because on the one hand side, um, it's very easy to see oneself pursuing um, a, a, a miraculously grand task, right? So, um, it is, it's just like, um, 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 so I'm, I'm dedicated to this because I think I need to formulate an ethics that mankind will actually, actually <laughs> be able to follow. Or yeah, like, yeah. Right? <laughs> um, that, I mean, th- these kinds of illusions, I, I rarely have them actually, uh, but, but I know colleagues of mine, not particularly here, but maybe, um, but I, I know colleagues who have that kind of illusion. Right. Um, right. Right. Um, which, which, which is fair enough. I mean, it's wrong, but which is kind of fair. Which, but it's kind of fair enough um, that you that you fall for this. Um, so I I never had that. I no. um, the the strange the strange thing that I I mean that got me into this, and maybe this is a very uh, the very specific. Eric Santner once. He's a friend of mine. I don't know if you know the guy. He's a he's a, a professor of German uh, in in Chicago, and yeah. in a in a conversation he once um, made a wonderful, I think, absolutely brilliant distinction. He basically said, "Well, you, there are two kinds of texts, and you can read, let's say, Habermas and understand it and reconstruct it, and it's totally fine, right? I mean, it's not like you don't get it. Mm-hmm. But then there are other texts that you read." And there is a certain surplus, and it's—I mean—they're cool, sexy, whatever you want to call it. They—they they get you, right? So it's not like Habermas is uh, unconvincing because you are—you find it troublesome or difficult to reconstruct or understand what he's saying. It is that other theorists have a certain surplus or other let's say, ways of thinking generate a certain surplus. And this certain surplus, which at the beginning can often, I think, uh, appear as a kind of opacity, right? I mean, you don't yes. know what this, right? I mean, um, je ne sais quoi, right? Yes. Uh, the, um, um, the, this is the thing that, that got me into it. And maybe, I mean, maybe in part, the only thing I'm trying to understand what this damn thing is, actually. Um, so your question is very difficult uh, for me to, to answer because in a way, um, um, you know, philosophers, uh, a lot of them at least, only in a way try to understand what they're doing when they're doing philosophy, right? <laughs> Which is a very strange kind of kind of <laughs> kind of circle. So you get in, into philosophy and you I mean, you basically assume as a student, well, some people should know, right? 
my teachers, whatever. <laughs> and then you continue, continue, continue. And at one point you, you reach, you, you reach, I mean, you, you're confronted with the insight that you always already had, right? I mean, you, you always already knew kind of, you don't know what you're really doing and the other people don't seem to be, uh, don't, don't, don't seem to know what they're doing either. So, so at one point you raise the question, what is, is it that we're doing when we're doing philosophy? Mm. And, Right. Is that an answer? I don't know. Oh, no, I think that's a, a brilliant answer. And um, uh, not to not to get sort of Monichaean on this, but I think <laughs> I wouldn't trust someone who who gave a, an answer radically different to that, because I think, I mean, one of the problems uh, uh, for philosophy in the context of, of the modern university, maybe in this world in general, is the kind of... Um, constant imperatives towards uh marketing and you see this everywhere in, and including in philosophy departments the the need for everything to protest like every uh product uh makes a, a sort of f clearly false claim to its absolute novelty that you know that this work is extraordinarily important that it's going to save the world that it's going to respond to um all of the problems of of the epoch in such a way that it will solve them but i think i think that answer has to be a little bit dishonest and a little bit uh uh delusional whereas i think i, I yeah i i think you strike something profound when you say both okay the the je ne sais quoi but also this the the appeal of a kind of opacity like maybe you start looking for solutions looking for answers you find them somewhere but there's there's more that's, that's... yeah i was saying about the uh the uh, opacity of of text but but of the kind that stimulate uh desire maybe in a in a lacanian sense I, i've talked about this with some other other guests De desire as opposed to demand uh you know precisely defined as something that that's uh where there's a you're impelled by something but there isn't an obvious object there isn't an obvious goal you know maybe maybe you flip between goals because of because of the desire but it's more like uh it's more like an imperative or or, or something like that I, I, actually on that note just um this this whole line of inquiry and you did say you know it's hard for philosophers to answer questions about what they're doing and even who they are and so forth without talking about philosophy per se so i thought um it, uh, this might be an obvious uh, segue to start uh, talking about some of your work um I, I i would like to talk uh, later about hegel's rabble and about the dash but i i want to start with abolishing freedom for a number of reasons uh one uh i think it, it obviously from the look of your recent publications uh is a preoccupation uh second uh, of yours second at the risk of sounding um yeah, it's hard for me to talk like this without getting all Oprah-like, but I'm I'm tempted to use <laughs> Oprah-like phrases like uh, when the book came out when I when I first read it, it um, it resonated with me, and I was surprised by the uh, relative absence of a response to it, particularly because it is a provocative book, and I I uh, wanted to 
start by asking you about, I, I suppose it's, it's opening and uh, constant provocation. The, the idea of, of fatalism, of the necessity of fatalism, of fatalism as a, as a good, uh, containing a critique of all notions of freedom is, is surely provocative to, to all sides. Um, um, what led you, first of all, uh, to this plea for fatalism? Um, well, I mean, l l let me let me add one 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 thing to my previous answer and the previous um, sure. um, uh, context, because even though it's hard for a philosopher to say something about what he or she is doing, actually. It is possible, right? <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> sure. Right? It's not like it's so damn opaque that no one can ever answer this. And the fatalism, the fatalism book, um, is actually an attempt to say what philosophy can do and right. did. Yes, did. Um, mm. So, in a sense, abolishing freedom is one gives one answer. It's not the only answer, obviously, but it gives one answer of what philosophy can do. And the 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 assumption of the whole book is <clears throat> that if you read through the history of modern rationalism, you you will easily. You, I mean, it, it is quite 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 uh, quite quite. It's not in the background. It, it's quite mm. visible and it's quite explicit that that. People as prominent as Descartes, as Kant, as Hegel, in a certain way, Freud, and maybe even Marx, um, defend something like a theory of determinism, right? Um, a theory that comes under different names. Classical name for that is predestination. So defense yes. of a certain, certain well, um, a defense of the idea that one must have a concept of destiny, right, of fate, mm -hmm. and that that and this comes from thinkers who are the um, the let's say epitomes um, of philosophers of freedom, right. So Hegel, if if you talk to anyone these days who is not totally opposed to Hegel, he will tell you. If he's a liberal or whatever republic, right? I mean, uh, they they have uh, been all these kinds of appropriations. That Hegel is clearly that the one thing that he's occupied with is giving us an understanding of what freedom is. Um, yes, and and the same with Kant, right? I mean, yes. um, and the same in a way with with Descartes. This is just like textbook philosophy, modern philosophy. So all of these people are talking about. Are, are are worried or are, are trying to to say something about the concept of freedom, but at the same time they believe that to say something about the concept of freedom, they have to say something about the concept of predestination. So, my my the, the assumption of the whole book was, um, and the, this whole project is that sometimes philosophy seems to be in a situation, and there I, I couldn't think of another discourse who would fulfill this. Um, fulfill this strange role <clears throat> of, 
um, that classically, very classically, was uh, uh, defined as ideology critique. But as a very difficult way um, uh, or, or difficult form of ideology critique, because it's an ideology critique which critiques the very fundamentals of ideology critique. Because ideology critique, if you if you if you if you if you have an um, maybe rather naive understanding of it, would basically tell you uh, would basically uh, presuppose that you can take a distance whenever you want to mm -hmm. the ideology or to the ideological framework that interpolates you, right? I mean that tries to seduce you, that uh, makes certain things invisible, and so. Um, there is a form of ideology critique, I think, that is philosophy, that is modern rationalist philosophy, that um, um, attacks, that criticizes, that examines the very presuppositions of the idea of taking a distance to the ideology that we're being interpolated by. So in a sense, and, and the name for this, the, the name for this is freedom, right? I mean, the, this is what I'm meandering around. Um, the, the thing, um, the, the basic assumption was uh, of the whole book was what if we can learn from the history of modern rationalism that philosophy sometimes, not always, but sometimes has the task of problematizing the concept of freedom that we spontaneously, intuitively, maybe unavoidably have. Um, and then, 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 then things get more complicated. Why do we have that 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 assumption and so forth of this concept of freedom? But nonetheless, I mean, th this is, I think, what what one can consistently see in Descartes, Kant, uh, Hegel, and so forth. So rationalism, modern rationalism, seems to have something to say about problematic notions of freedom. Right. So they're all thinkers of freedom. On the one hand side, on the other hand side, they all endorse predestination. My idea was predestination is a tool of ideology critique of problematic notions of freedom. And if we believe that maybe today the notion of freedom that we're all living by or supposed to live by is also problematic, maybe we can learn something by taking a look at the history of modern philosophy because it was constantly or often in a situation where uh, we started living by a notion, where, where, where a notion of freedom became hegemonic that was problematic, or that, that, that these thinkers deemed problematic. Yes, uh, I, this is, hmm, I, sorry, I, I, I need to, sorry, James, you're gonna have to have to cut my stumbling, or maybe keep it in for <laughs> for authenticity. But um, the uh, yeah, okay. What I wanted to ask you about this is is when I said the the book is is uh, provocative. I mean, I I think you make very convincing uh, textual and and contextual arguments for the importance of this thought of predestination in Descartes, in Kant, in Hegel, uh, all of these thinkers who, uh, as you say, are known in their textbook, but, but not, not just their, their sort of textbook accounts, but as thinkers of freedom. Um, you make a very convincing uh, series of arguments about 
the the role predestination plays in their thought, which we'll we'll get to. But as far as I know, you're, uh, and I'm sure you you deny the the notion that this is unprecedented, but that you're unique in this. As in the the book opens with a chapter on the debate between uh, Luther and Erasmus about the freedom of the will. Luther, of course, is known as a defender of predestination, but I think uh, for many. Um, philosophers, or, or at least people who work in, in philosophy departments and write academic papers, the idea of predestination is something that only belongs to Protestant theology, theology and particularly a kind of, um, I, I don't know how to put it, but a, a, a fideistic, uh, doer, grim, uh, so the sort of thing that might come up in Kierkegaard, but but not in a rationalist, not in, not in a Descartes, not in a uh, certainly not in in Kant's the defender of of autonomy. So, before we get into into uh, where you find these notions of predestinations uh, in these thinkers, I, I wanted to step back a bit and talk about the I, I suppose the the ideology of freedom as it dominates the planet or or our times, because I think part of your argument. Uh, is is surely that if we've missed the explicit devotion to the idea of predestination or the role that it plays in in Kant, Hegel, Descartes, it's because we still approach their works through our own kind of uh, embroilment in our own contemporary ideology of freedom. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking uh, maybe uh, Foucault says somewhere that, you know, one of one of the things about uh, philosophy after after Kant is that it cannot mm, it cannot not react to its present or make the present into something explicit that it has to contend with. Um, other thinkers would say this. But so before we we get into the thinkers to, to talk about Luther and and uh, and, and Marx and, and Diderot and, and Descartes. What did you see uh, or how do you see this ideology of, of freedom uh, as it plays a role in the world, in our political discourses and, and so forth? As something that I, I presume y you think needs to be opposed. Well, let me let, let me let me let me make three quick points the first one sure. is and um the first one is and maybe it's a bit off track um or sounds uh, depending on your your political leanings uh, a bit off the map in general but um lenin at one point in i think 1920 says we should never use the concept of freedom and equality unless wow. we have freedom and equality right wow he yeah. makes a strong claim for that because, mm -hmm. in a way, he basically says, as soon as we say freedom, unless we actually establish freedom, we're lying. Right? And so everyone who basically yes. um, uses the signifier freedom is, I mean, in Lenin's sense, and this may seem to be a vulgar analysis, but nonetheless, it's very straightforward, has a has a political agenda, right? has an interest of why a certain understanding of freedom um, or why, why 
people talk about freedom. And then the strange, the strange situation is that we're living in a world where everyone spontaneously, obviously, is addressed as someone being free, yes. as someone of having not simply all the choices and there's terror in what, I don't know, what kind of milk you you buy what kind of latte you want to drink and so forth <laughs> but but this is not not something that i that i find most troublesome i think the and that's the, well, already the second point right now i think the 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 assumption <clears throat> um and this ha is a a commons um that, or this is a diagnosis that i basically take from marx and i yeah, I'm outing myself as a lefty already, right, Lyndon Marx and so forth. Um, that's, uh, but um, or whatever that that's supposed to mean. But 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 Marx clearly indicates that um, <clears throat> freedom, equality, Bentham, right, is yes. what keeps the whole thing running, the, mm -hmm. the the system we're living in. What does that mean? It means that <clears throat> the the last term in the series, so. Bentham. Bentham. He's, uh, right, I mean, the utilitarian uh, yeah. theorist determines the contents of the signifiers that we're using, right? So if we're talking about freedom, it's a specific kind of freedom. It's not the freedom as such, it is a specific kind of freedom. And, and the okay. freedom of free trade, as you also as you also quote Marx saying. Yes, precisely, yes. Um, so so strangely, um, if we defend freedom, we defend something that people who would defend free trade would also defend, right? Mm -hmm. Which mm -hmm. is, so that at least can generate problematic liaisons and allegiances. This is, um, so, so Lenin says, sometimes we should avoid it. Marx says, well, sometimes it's really problematic, right? Mm -hmm. And why is that that's the third point because i believe um and um this is this is a very 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 trivial um trivial observation because um um there is a tendency in the 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 the, the, the uh, social political system and belief systems we're living in um <clears throat> to naturalize things what does it mean? It it basically means that, well, the world we're in appears to us as if it were nature or natural because we can't imagine things to be different. And that means this, right? I mean, it's very hard. There is this saying that everyone always quotes, right? It's uh, easier to imagine the end yeah. of the world than the end of capitalism, blah, 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 right? This, this, this trope. And this this is an index of naturalization. I believe, um, and this is the argument uh, of the of the the fatalism book, um, that this naturalization um, takes a specific form when we're talking about freedom. Maybe the argument would be should should be or would be different when we were uh, talking about the concept of uh, equality and so forth. Here, with with regard to the concept of freedom, naturalization works in the following way, namely that everyone believes. That freedom is just a given. Right? We are human, hence we are free. This is the, the, the inscribed into the definition almost of what the human, as people nowadays say, uh, life form is all about. Um, I think this is highly problematic because 
I mean, I, I mobilized the rhetoric or the, the trope of um, sellers and basically call this the myth of the givenness of freedom. Um, yes. Because I, um, I, I believe that as soon as we take freedom to be something which is just there because we have been born and hence it's just like biological and natural and so forth, we make a category mistake. Um, to put it in the most technical way uh, possible, because we believe something that necessarily is related to being realized, freedom without being real or realized without being active cannot be freedom. How could it? I mean, it's just like a, <laughs> it's a totally trivial point, right? I mean, um, if you're not realizing freedom, um, how would you be free? Because you're not realizing freedom. Hence, you could not be right. I mean, it's almost tautological what I'm saying. Um, but as soon as you as you believe you are free, even though you are not realizing freedom, you take freedom to be a given. And the form in which this given appears to you, or is propagated, is the form of uh, 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 of capacities. So, mm. people people. So, 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 so there is a, and this is even, even, let's say, repeated within uh, quite prominent strands of contemporary philosophy, which thereby proved to be, for me at least, highly problematic. Um, that freedom is a kind of natural possession, possession of of human beings, a natural capacity, a natural feature, a thing that we just have, right? And then we can realize it by, I don't know buying a Porsche or drinking coffee or whatever, right? Um, or watching porn. Um, but all these manifestations of freedom rely on the assumption that essentially in what makes us human, there is a capacity on which we rely. And this is just like um, uh, uh, inscribed into our very nature. This is not simply a polemic that I invent. This uh, We're still in the third point right so i move from <laughs> lenin is saying okay sometimes uh, there there is a problem with using a signifier uh, uh, marx says well there is not sometimes only a problem with 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 the signifier but actually a whole system is running on a specific understanding of the signifier and what i'm adding maybe not adding but just like trying to explicate um make more explicit is um that a specific naturalizing understanding of freedom is, I think, what is running the system, in part. Not all, so I, I, that's not a whole theory of capital and so forth, obviously. But I think it is an ideological, uh, it is a, a necessary element of an ideology critique of uh, 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 spontaneous, almost spontaneous assumptions that everyone shares shares these days i think i lost my thread somewhere but i hope it nonetheless made sense no on on on, on the contrary um that third point in in particular i i think is is uh, an excellent indication of the um radicality of your thesis because i think um a number of uh marxist a lot of people on the left um i think would grant uh on the surface of things, the the argument about uh, freedom as an ideology, the the hollowness of of uh, libertarian conceptions of, of of freedoms and and their pernicious effects, the um, neoliberal 
institutions, but also a, a complete transformation of, of culture so that everything becomes uh, uh, the matter of an individual, uh, a, a matter of uh, allegedly a matter of choice. Um, if everything is made as a matter of choice, then everything is 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 turned into something to which individuals are responsible for. But then you add this to the notion that um, individuals are responsible for everything, and yet linking to the the Jameson or whomever quote about about capitalism. But you get you get populations that feel utterly impotent and alienated about their capacity to say effect political change but on the other hand i'm responsible for my mental health for any physical things uh fortune and so forth so i think i think there's been a lot of work on that and people are, are aware of that but the the third point that you make about the ideology of freedom as a capacity what at certain times in the book you refer to as a as a essentially Aristotelian notion. Um, Long-time listeners of this podcast uh, and know that Aristotle must be destroyed. Um, but that, that point, I think, is something that you still find uh, in people uh, on the left who would make the standard critiques of the neoliberal ideology of freedom uh, and, 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 and perhaps quote Marx on... on uh, um, uh, Freedom and Bentham, but they would still maintain something like, I think a lot of people would say something like, ah, yes, but of course you have to affirm some fundamental capacity for freedom because insofar as, because that would be a, a necessary condition of possibility for any kind of radical change or something like that, that, that we, we must affirm the capacity or we slip into fatalism and that means quietism and that means disarming our capacity to do things. Now, I'm not uh, convinced by that argument and I suspect uh, uh, you're not either but but can you uh, say a bit more about that like what would you say to those who would say yeah okay we, we, we understand the pernicious ideology of freedom the the tyranny of, of choice as as uh, Renato Salacho talks about it but we're still going to maintain freedom as a as a human capacity as something that we we need to maintain um, in order to justify the the possibility and the meaningfulness of our struggles. Now, this is this is something that, as far as I can see, it abolishing freedom uh, wants to wants to take aim at. Wants to say, no, this is the this is part of the problem. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, I mean, let me let me let me say an, a number of maybe almost empirical things first before I before I make a stronger claim. Um, if you take a look at what uh, dominant uh, positions in contemporary philosophy institutes or departments look like, right? mm. um, there you will find almost only almost ninety percent are Aristotelians, um, Aristotelian, <laughs> Aristotelian Wittgensteinians, actually, right? Jesus. Um, um, why, why are there Aristotelians? Because they're interested in understanding the rational structure, and they assume it is a rational structure of our actions and practices, right? Um, right yes. They believe that they can do this by offering a general account of rationality that is a general account of what it means to be rational, and that is a general account of 
what it means to have the comp- capacity to reason in a free way, right? So basically, they all believe that we have capacities, and if we understand the capacities, we see the normative implications of what we should do, how we should act, and so forth, and understand the ways in which we violate these norms or follow these norms or are un- unable to ever violate these norms. So, so what has become very dominant is, um, at least as a representation of um, of what it means to investigate the very idea of human freedom, has um, is is a form of 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 of, of philosophical naturalism in a way, right? Life form is the term. Mm-hmm. This is why I'm saying Wittgenstein, because um, Wittgenstein is the culprit who just like invented this shit, right? And um, <laughs> then, then people took it off uh, uh, and 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 believe that there is a an internal connection between an Aristotelian understanding, an Aristotelian understanding of rationality, and an understanding of human life form. Um, unfortunately, even Agamben uses, uses this term. Um, well, he he endorses Aristotle in a, in a different way, and this is a complicated discussion. Anyhow, so first empirical thing: every, I mean, a huge part of, of philosophical academia has become Aristotelian, and so forth, and endorses this kind of position. Um, there is even, secondly, an Aristotelian Marxism, obviously, right? Because there is the cliche that early Marx was an Aristotelian. And this is why he talked about human beings as species beings, right? That are alienated within capitalist societies. And then if we understand the internal normativity, to speak more like Habermas and so forth, the internal normativity of our species, we understand why living the way we're living is simply wrong. Right? I mean, not like biologically, almost naturally wrong. And hence we we need to overcome it. So, so there, and of course there is this, there is a, so we have reactionary Aristotelians, we have certain Aristotelian Marx, Marxists, um, and then there are of course rather activists on the left who basically say, well, if we get rid of the idea Precisely as you said before, if we get rid of the idea that everyone has a free will, how could we mobilize anyone, right? I mean, how would it be possible mm. to activate any 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 kind of transformation whatsoever? I, I, see, I see the last points, obviously. And I'm not saying that in every situation, in any situation, it is strategically wise to attack freedom. I'm not saying that. I'm uh, that's not sure. a general thesis, right? Sometimes. No. I mean, if you're living in a tyranny, it could be totally cool to endorse freedom, right? I mean, it yeah, could absolutely. be the right, right thing to do. Right. And so um I I I would very strongly reject any kind of overgeneralization, but I think in the specific situation we're in right now, which we can talk about. I mean, which thinkers like but you describe as let's say, an intermediate situation, right? So certain yes. things happened, then certain things collapsed, and it's unclear where we are right now. So there is 
I mean, what he describes in, in almost Kantian terms in, as disorientation, right? I mean, there's practical and, and, uh, and so forth, disorientation. So, so in, in these specific times, I think it is problematic, and this is, again, my, 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 my Leninist point, it's problematic to endorse, uh, to, to believe that uh, mobilizing through and via the concept of freedom or the signifier of freedom can actually lead to emancipation simply because, I, um, again, the Leninist point, simply because I believe freedom, I mean, became what I call a signifier of disorientation. So, 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 so freedom, in, in a way, um, 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 and the, the, let me put it so right now I'm stumbling but, but, but uh, um, if, if you're endorsing something that George W. Bush would also have endorsed something is wrong right I mean oh, this most is definitely I'm, yes right I mean so so if we're bringing um, so okay right now it's Trump and this is <laughs> another another discussion <laughs> but just like for for, 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 for for the sake of clarity if we're basically saying well we're bringing uh, freedom to Afghanistan, right? And if you're saying, well, freedom therefore is the right signifier that we need to mobilize people here in the UK or in Australia, there seems some, something is problematic if you end up endorsing the same the same signifiers as um, as someone like George Bush. And I'm just, in a way, um, making. Um, here an almost strategical or tactical a tactical argument you know lenin lenin in 19 uh, at, at one point after after uh, like all social democratic parties in europe voted for the war credits i mean he exiled himself to 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 <clears throat> to switzerland and so forth but the, the the crucial point is afterwards he realized that the signifier social democracy because it had been hijacked, and all all signifiers can be hijacked, is not the right signifier to endorse emancipation anymore. And this is basically a similar argument that I'm trying to make. So right now, in the situation we're in, the historical conjecture we're in, I don't think that freedom is the right signifier, um, because it comes with all those problems that in in the academy we get uh, uh, reactionary Aristotelians in uh, and I think Aristotelianism. I mean, but you once nicely said, I think somewhere in Belgium, uh, we need to kill Aristotle, and I fully <laughs> endorse this. Um, um, and why I why I'm and this is not la last three sentences. This is not about an appropriate and adequate in detail reading of Aristotle. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to mimic Heidegger's uh, blaming of Plato. And I'm trying to move the blame away from Plato onto Aristotle and basically make him into the culprit. And okay, okay, it's of course a joking gesture, but there is something to it, right? I mean, it's exaggerated, I know. So maybe Aristotle can be defended by great Aristotelian readers and whatsoever. But 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 the move I'm trying to make is uh, is to basically say, well, something happened with Aristotle. Well, Aristotle provides resources for a lot of problematic positions within the left and the right, if this distinction makes any sense anymore. It, it, it does. I, I mean, yeah, I, I think there are a number of, okay, I, I'm going to refer to uh, uh, two um, distinct 
points that that you made just then. So on the one hand, yeah, I think there are a lot of things that argue in favor of your first point, as in the fact that freedom is no longer a uh, an appropriate signifier for which a, a radical uh, left project could get behind. Uh, for example, I, I'm not sure whether it was uh, Zizek who said this, but it's. Uh, I think he may have at, so, at some point, but it seems to me uh, we've all had that experience with a uh, protest of something like uh, you get millions of people on the streets of Berlin or London or even a small city like Melbourne protesting against, say, the war on the war in Iraq, uh, a war to bring freedom to to the people of the Middle East in 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 the name uh, according to its the ideologues of that war, and then the powers that be say, ah. There you go. See, those people who we will now proceed to absolutely ignore in every way, they're exercising our freedom. This shows that, uh, in a sense, despite themselves, they are supporters of the ideology of freedom which has been given to them is this kind of gift uh, that we're now... Uh, presuming to bring around the uh, to spread around the world. So, so yes, I, I I think you make a good case for that signifier being utterly compromised. On on the second point um, with regards to to Aristotle. So my sense is that when you when you talk about Aristotle, perhaps you can you, maybe maybe this is going too far, or or you can you can tell me what you think of this but it seems to me that you're talking about something like what Baji might call democratic materialism that there's that we're there are only bodies and languages and we're dealing with the link between the two we're, we're talking about the way uh, something natural uh, is a basis for and then crosses a certain threshold out of which we get normativity that this is and 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 hence aristotelian wittgensteinians aristotelian marxist and so forth that everything is is uh nature and culture but it's the point of you can have knowledge of the one and then think about that threshold enter the space of the normative and and philosophy becomes uh something that's trying to reconstruct normativity on the basis of a naturalism i'm i'm not sure whether you you think that's the case but i'll add a, a third point to that and that is i i get the sense that um part of what how you reject this is through the notion of something that has uh something to do with neither nature or culture i don't know whether you call it a a, a radical negativity or a sort of a more platonic break with that nature culture matrix in terms of truth um but yeah uh, 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 uh frank have i uh, am i somewhere on the right track of, of <laughs> no, what, no, no, what I, aristotle I, I, means to you no i i i agree largely with what you're saying but i mean on the one hand side yes you're you're fundamentally right um why what i'm trying to 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 hit at attack um filter out is what 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 you once in the seminar called the holy cow of uh, of the contemporary world, and he believes, and this was he still believes, 
back then when he said it, he still believed it's democracy. Yes. And I agree with that. Um, but I think the essence of democracy in Western, in Western terms is freedom. Um, and this is why I think the holy cow of the holy cow, right? um, 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 the father or mother or whatever you like of the holy cow is, uh, is freedom. And you're fundamentally right. Um, I, I, I believe that there is what, what Badu in Logics of Wealth called a biomaterialism. Yes, yes. Um, and, and this kind of biomaterialism manifests or mobilizes Aristotelian resources. Why are, are Aristotelian resources mobilizable for this kind of biomaterialism bio, bio that makes us believe that the only things that there are are basically bodies and what we can say about them? Because it only says stuff about our bodies, right? <laughs> the one thing it says about our bodies is that these bodies are free, different from chicken or whatever, worms, right? Our bodies are free, and that's the cool thing about them. And that makes um, makes us humans, but thereby freedom becomes, again, a natural equipment, a natural feature, Um it is naturalized, and fr and and right now, you're. I totally agree with 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 that description too. This is a problem because if you believe that freedom must have something to do with something that is not natural, right? Like cultural, as you indicate. Mm -hmm. um, what the fuck does it mean that we are supposed to be free by nature? Isn't that a problem? And I think it is a huge problem because we naturalize freedom. And as soon as we naturalize freedom, we naturalize, right? I mean, that's the old, old idea of Adorno in, in the idea of natural history, right? I mean, as soon as we start naturalizing that, and this is the, the, the pressing thing that culture does um, for, for Adorno, um, we have a problem because we cannot account for the very origins of culture anymore, right? I mean, so culture is working against itself. In the very epitome of uh, uh, of, uh, 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 the, of 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 an attempt to understand its own origins, right? So, so which is uh, namely, what is a human being, right? What is a what is human nature? Um, what is a human being? Because if we understand what is a human being, we we can understand how a human being is different from nature, and then we can understand what's culture because it is the practice of human beings. Um, but here the problem emerges. I mean, as I as I tried to indicate just a second ago, as soon as as one naturalizes what is supposed to be constitutive of culture, one has a and, and calls that freedom, one loses the distinction between nature and culture, and basically one loses um, the, the the very idea the very idea of freedom. And let me just like add one and and one 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 quick thing. Um, the the thing that um, this is not simply a thought experiment that I'm trying to push as far as possible, but um, when I when you think of any relevant examples of what it means to be of, of, of experiences that seem to be specific, maybe not, not only, but specific to human beings and that one might describe 
um, uh, by recourse to the concept of freedom. These examples are never examples where we just actualize something we already had. Um, right? I mean, if you, I don't know, romantic, cheesy, blah, uh, example, nonetheless, if you fall in love, right? I mean, yes. that is something um, w- which an average hamster, I guess, doesn't do. <laughs> No, um, I, I have nothing against hamsters, really. I, 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 I'm totally, I'm totally indifferent to hamsters. I, I don't even, I, I don't dislike them, don't like them. Anyhow, but an average hamster, I, I, I assume wouldn't meet a hamster lady or whatever you call them, um, and and then go, wow, I. I, I I don't know. Uh, we chatted online, but this is much better. And oh God, I'm gonna change my life. I I'm gonna move to Scotland because of you or whatever. <laughs> right? I mean, this is this is not not something that a hamster would do. And nonetheless, that seems to be very specific to what humans do. And um, if the specificity um, of what we describe as human practice um, has something to do with freedom. Maybe this this was is is at least my intuition. Maybe these examples tell us much more relevant and significant things than the examples where we where we uh, describe human action as if we're just I don't know. We always were able to eat fries, and right now we're actualizing that capacity. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm being polemical. Sorry, but um, no. Yeah. That the your ex, that's that's a really um, uh, fecund e- e- example, and and you won't get cancelled for your hatred of of hamsters, or at least, well, <laughs> I'll I'll try and I'll disavow you when you when you when you do, <laughs> thank you when you do Frank in the in the traditional cowardly uh, uh, fashion of of academics. <laughs> but I um, uh, when you speak of the example of of love, I I, I think you make a, a really good point that most of the things that we might think of as associated with with freedom so love but also things like radical political change revolutions and so forth tend to seem to have this element that as you say um far from looking like the realization of a pre-existing capacity often have this uh elements of a blurring between the lines between activity and passivity, a sense of something coming from the outside, of kind of uh, 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 capturing or captivating one, right? Precisely as if as if one lacked freedom in these in these moments. Yeah, it, that's that's part of your your point. If I understand you correctly, that if we actually look at the examples of of things in which we would find freedom, we don't. Uh, find things that fit with this model of a capacity of a natural capacity that is then realized or given different forms within different cultures but more something that that can feel uh like the impossible incursion from an outside that that then leads to something like a, a even a, a sort of captivity by by what has happened a, a passivity in the face of it is 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 that I absolutely no no I absolutely yeah. I absolutely agree I think I mean this was part of um um this is this this is an essential um element of why I was drawn to Luther not only because well anything that was relevant in in German thoughts has a relation to Luther actually <laughs> right I mean, of course. Just like, yes. I mean right I mean Hegel 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 
uh, absolutely decidedly and emphatically de- declares at one point in his life, I'm a Lutheran, I will always remain Lutheran. And, a, and an orthodox Lutheran, I think, is, as well, to be uh, yes. amusing. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. So, but the, what what drew me to Luther is what drew people like Kant and Hegel, and not comparing myself to these geniuses because I'm an idiot, but, but, but um, um, drew me to Luther with something, I think, similar, because Luther... Raises the very, very trivial, trivial uh, question, in a way. What is it that makes me believe, right? What yeah. is it that generate is creative, is generative of faith? And in his debate with Erasmus um, of Rotterdam, he basically says, "Well, if you believe that you can believe simply because you can, you're wrong." Right? Because you can't just decide to start believing, as much as you, as well as you can simply decide to fall in love. It's impossible. I mean, this is why this is the old argument that I think, uh, but you always make, and then GJ picked up and so forth. I mean, if you if you go onto an online um, uh, dating portal or whatever, and you think, well. She is great. She likes horses. I like horses. She likes Bruce Willis. I like Bruce Willis. Whatever, right? I mean, this would never make you fall in love. Otherwise, I mean, if that were to be the case, you could just like talk to someone and basically say, I mean, imagine I, I just fell in love, right? And I'm, we're, we are having this chat and I'm, I'm going to tell her, uh, tell you about her and tell you, I don't know, she is... She's a billionaire. It's great. Horses, Bruce Willis, and all that. And then <laughs> afterwards, you will never say, well, I'm in love too. Right? I mean, that would be totally absurd right, to imagine this to be the case, right? And just as uh, after a list of objective features yeah, um, yeah. that something like that happens. So there is a subjectivization, a moment that subjectivizes you, something, a surplus. We started with this when we talked about the philosophy thing. So something must happen to you to start believing. And this is the thing that, 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 that Luther brings out. And Luther's argument, I think, is, is hard to beat, actually, um, or hard to uh, oppose or counter, because he basically says, well, we really only start believing if something happens to us, an event of faith, an event of that that, that, that um, interpolates us, that forces us to believe. And this is not not anything that we that we could choose or would have in our own capacity. So it's something that exceeds the things that we're able to do. And this is why it is actually uh, an epitome, uh, epitome of, of faith. Why? Because what do we realize as soon as we start believing that we believe in something that exceeds our capacities? What else is God, right? I mean, God is precisely something... Uh, someone, something that that we can't comprehend, right? I mean that that is in excess of um, of whatever whatever ways we try to capture or understand it. By. Um, so so the very the very so we we only this moment of this excessive moment, uh, this right where where we where we feel utterly incapacitated. Um, we learn that. There can be something that we would not even have believed to be possible. So, so Luther's argument is: How do you, what, what, 
what what does does a proper understanding of believing tell you that you're totally incapacitated actually because you have to believe in something that is so in excess that it's unimaginable and at the same time you can't even start believing unless this thing forces you to believe right and the experience of incapacity that that is actual is actually uh, constitutive or foundational for what what Luther called freedom in faith, freedom in belief. Does that make sense? It does. And that's that's already I, I see part of your response to the activist we mentioned before, mm-hmm. as it as in that far from needing to appeal to the signifier of, of, of freedom that it it, it, it isn't uh an activation of a capacity existing in a pre-existing subject. We're talking about a, a subjectivation as something that would have to take place in order for there to be politics. Like, but we don't we don't start with the subject. The the subject emerges out of a process of subjectivation. But I'm I'm really um, fascinated with with what you have to say about Luther for a number of, of reasons. I I, I think um, I suppose I say this uh, to our listeners, but when I I spoke about uh, how struck I was by the the book. Um, I think uh, and and I think others will have this response. Um, the extent to which uh, you managed to make Luther, um, uh, who is uh, for many people in his 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 antisemitism, his his mm. his fideism, his scatological obsessions, like terribly unpleasant, and people would uphold Erasmus as this sensible, moderate, humane figure fighting against fanaticism or something like that. But as you present the the debate, and I think within the debate between the two of them, um, Erasmus comes across as a sophist and a lick spittle of of <laughs> the powerful and and luther is something very different but but this this makes me want to to ask you about how we get to the question of of predestination because i can see uh again when we're speaking of uh academic orthodoxies maybe some thinkers uh who'd, who'd read some zizek or, or badiou granting Something like the point that you're making about about the necessity of well, what in Luther is called grace, right? Or or this the nature of subjectivation, uh, the fact that something like love can't be reduced to a, a cost benefit analysis or or uh, predicates and so forth. But I can I can see some of these same people saying, ah, oh, but but predestination, like surely surely that's going too far. Surely that's a a, a, a unsalvageable theological uh, uh, category. You make a very good case, however, throughout the book and not just with Luther of why uh, predestination is necessary to think about uh, freedom in the problematic way that these various philosophers do um, to, in other words, to not think of freedom as a, as a given. Um, can you, can you uh, tell us a bit about the role predestination plays in in abolishing freedoms starting with luther sure uh, i mean the, the the whole argument that luther makes against uh, erasmus uh, works like that as soon as you believe that our reason that there is one type of rationality this is what interested me right i mean so erasmus is basically saying well god and 
we share the same kind of reason. And hence, if we behave in a good way, he will just like grant us entry, the entrance into paradise, right? Yeah. And hence, we can economize with that, right? I mean, we know um, what are God's motives. He's just like us, right? I mean, isn't there this weird song? Uh, he's just one of us, uh, <laughs> right? I mean, this is basically Erasmus' idea. He's just one of us, um, and hence we can understand him, right? And and because we can understand him, uh, we can economize. Um, and hence we shouldn't worry too much about what he predestined, because he kind of okay, everything was kind of kind of ruined with original sin. Yet, because he's not evil, because we know he couldn't be evil, because he's God and he should be good, um, we, we, we can calculate with this. And Luther basically freaks out. I mean, he has the most, it's kind of funny even. I mean, he basically, in the, in the, in the, in the first, first part of his response to Erasmus, he basically says, listen, your, your theory is so stupid, I thought I shouldn't even reply. Right? I mean, it's so ridiculously <laughs> bad. Um, but but he makes a similar argument that he made against the Catholic Church, um, namely that you're starting to economize with something that is non or n or uneconomical. Right? Mm. Um, what does that mean? And 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 predestination plays a plays a specific role in this. It means a to radically insist on the difference, on the, let's say, dividedness of reason. It is as if, I mean, some, some people have argued that this is as if we, 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 we get the, um, like, an account of consciousness and unconsciousness, right, um, in a way. So reason is not one. Rationality is not one. It's not consistent. It's not like one total, uh, one, one totality whereby we are able to anticipate to anticipate and economize with what 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 we believe and think we know about God, so what Luther basically emphasizes that's the first point. Luther basically emphasizes difference. There, why should our values, our norms, be applicable to the guy who generated us or to the woman who generated us? Right? <laughs> why, why should it be? Um, because. If that were to be the case, we would be in the position to be able to evaluate God, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's blasphemy, right? I mean, that, that is blasphemy. So in a sense, the assertion of the radical difference, almost an ontico-ontological difference, right? I mean, so God is so different. It's not just like one of our kind. He's or she is something totally, totally different. And we... We need to think difference to be to be to 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 get a grip on what it means to have any kind of any kind of um, concept of God, not only a concept that or or an idea. Let me put it differently: that there is, and this is uh, what what Luther finds problematic in Erasmus, that there is no relation between God and human beings. Right? That's that's Luther's Luther's version of um, uh, 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 articulating what it means to think difference. There is no relation between yes. 
the divinity and human beings. Um, hence, Luther is in a way a precursor, I think, of psychoanalysis. Um, so it's a radical difference. Okay, what does it now mean to assert this radical difference um, that A, we have to reject, refuse, um, um, uh, and give up all, all assumptions that we will ever be able to understand what God, God, God wants from us? Maybe he or she doesn't want anything from us, right? I mean, um, Luther, um, I think uh, there's the story that Luther once said, uh, what are human beings? Human beings are pieces of shit that fell from God's anus. The devil's anus, I, say, yeah. I recall. And, yeah, yes. People, and that, yes, and that's quite beautiful, right? I mean, because yes. that that means, I mean, we're we're just the world is the gigantic toilet, right? And, <laughs> and I mean, literally, um, um, do we do we do we do we do we uh, presuppose that God cares about or the devil cares about his or her shit? <laughs> is that right? I mean, okay. Some people in, uh, we know we learn from from Zizek that some people French, I guess, inspect <laughs> their their excrements and so forth. But I mean, is that is God French or the devil? Is that right? I mean, we we don't know, right? So in a, in a way, uh, we shouldn't assume that anyone cares for us. Um, and in a, in a way, it's like the the I don't know if you if you've ever seen Dawn of the Dead, the remake by Zack Snyder. Mm -hmm. There is this wonderful beginning where um, uh, where the world is falling into pieces, and then uh, uh, Snyder plays the, the the Johnny Cash song, "The Man Who Comes Around," which right, which is basically a story of uh, the apocalypse, and then then basically God deciding randomly, without uh, with in total disregard of what we of of what anyone did before who's going to be saved and who's not going to be saved, right? So it's total contingency. So what I'm trying to say, two steps. So Luther, against the idea that there is a relation between God and human beings, that's the emphasis of, of Erasmus, uh, um, which enables him to economize, um, calculate with belief and faith, asserts a radical difference and the implementation of this radical difference of this non-relation between God, God and men, is affirmed and structurally implemented by the theory of predestination. Why? Because the theory of predestination means there is God must have a plan. God, there there is a plan. Why should God not just like use us as puppets in a way? But at the same time, because there is this radical distance, this radical difference between us and God, we will never be able to know. So what, what, what Luther's argument is against Erasmus is that the insight into this fundamental difference that is structuring our whole cosmos enables us to see that knowledge is not enough, that belief and this uh, resonates with what we talked about before that there is something a surplus something else than just knowledge we will never be able to know god because it would be blasphemy to god's plan because it would be blasphemy to 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 assume that uh, that um and hence the what is the function of predestination the function of predestination is to make us understand this very difference 
the difference that separates uh, God from man, because only thereby we understand what we are, excrements, in a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, Later, you you make an analogy, um, or or you you point to a homology with uh, Descartes talking about um, God's uh, perfections, as I as I recall, and you and you say uh, uh, there's a, there's a structural similarity in in Descartes' argument that it's it's from the experience of imperfection that you get yeah. to the idea of of perfection. But here we have we have okay this this radical this unbridgeable distance between uh, man and God, uh, which uh, is the basis of all Erasmus's equivocating and so forth. Uh, um, pre- predestination allows you to experience something like the poverty of of freedom or belief and knowledge seen as something that emerges from freedom this this leads me to um uh two uh questions that i have you uh, on the basis of that that they both point in uh very different directions you might want to only answer one of them but i uh, uh, but okay here they here they are the, the first question is about um th- is about uh rationalism so this uh luther's in- insistence on on god as 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 holy other is is uh, well, well known, and the the radical lack of any analogy. I, I recall Luther saying somewhere that that uh, uh, also interestingly for our discussion that Aristotle is to theology as darkness is to light, right? And mm-hmm. so yeah. Luther Luther has this effect of of purging uh, the idea of there being any anything uh, sacrosanct about nature, but not just sacrosanct that that nature is, is a structure full of meanings. I've, I've heard some arguments about how paradoxically, despite his critique of things like philosophy, Luther for, for this reason, uh, ends up being a, a precursor, uh, 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 to the, to the enlightenment precisely because that he helps destroy that, uh, I suppose Renaissance, uh, cosmology medieval cosmology where where the world is and and nature in particular is is pregnant with with meaning with with tele or purposes um so okay so there's there's luther the anti the anti-aristotelian uh luther defender of predestination but my first question is i i think there are a number of, of philosophers who would who would understand that this belongs to uh luther's framework of thinking but not associate it with the rationalism of the of the following Mm. century thinking of luther as an irrationalist or a a fideist you you make some very convincing arguments uh for actually for why predestination is actually at the heart of rationalist philosophy I, i i'd like you uh to talk about a bit more about that um actually but yeah in fact maybe i'll save the i'll save the second question because that's quite a, a large one so how do, we, okay. how do okay. we get from from yeah the ineffable the holy other that is god <laughs> uh, uh it, it to human reason to something to yeah. the same motifs being taken up at the heart of rationalism yeah i, I mean the luther's basic point was what does it mean to accept that there is this harsh difference between human beings and God? 
Why? Because as soon as I accept that I'm in an excremental status, so right, I mean that that I'm basically a piece of shit. This is yeah. what it means. I see myself with God's eyes. Mm. Right? Because this is what right, I mean, just like take take just take use this image and just like he he took a dump and then right he looks at it <laughs> and how 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 uh, how 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 uh, so so the the moment where you accept that you're a piece of shit that's Luther's argument there is something solitary to it right because mm-hmm. you you get a sense of God's greatness right of the the so there have been arguments people uh, some some people basically said well isn't that just basic kant <laughs> isn't this just like uh-huh. a, a distinction between we we have uh, uh, we never get the thing in itself right isn't the thing in itself and the thing for us distinction precisely the distinction that luther is talking about right I mean, right um, and in a way, one I think one could make a strong, strong case for this, and people people have done so before. The the thing that I'm I'm trying to argue um, in the in the fatalism book is slightly different, because um, I'm mimicking Hegel's own description of the of the history of modern philosophy. So so in he, in Hegel. And I'm abbreviating that brutally and cutting out and leaving leaving aside uh, tons of stuff. But um, so in in Hegel's description, what there is the Reformation, which is a huge event, right? I mean, yes. the second event for Hegel is, is the French Revolution, but the first event is is um, the Reformation. The standard interpretation of this is well, because people started to think on their own terms and hence got independent from the from the religious institutions, Catholic Church, and so forth. Um, the, 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 the slight modification that I introduce here is that the Reformation is a huge event because, or for precisely the reason we, we, we talked about a bit earlier, precisely, namely, because with, Luce, with Luther, in my reading, for Hegel, um, people realized that they're living in a gigantic latrina, in a way, right? And they they accept their own taking taking up the position. It's not simply that that people started to think for themselves with with the Reformation, but that this act of thinking for themselves necessarily meant to accept one's own experimental position, right? So 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 these two things I would align. Okay, in. In Luther, there is a prohibition to speculate about, very different from what later Calvinism does, there's a prohibition to speculate about God's plan, right? It's blasphemy. Why is it blasphemy? Because otherwise we, 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 we assume that we are able to understand what God is, God is thinking. Okay, so how does that, this, this concept of predestination, so God has a plan, but it remains unknowable to us, because in a way we have to accept the fundamental difference that separates us from God. Um, how does this become implemented, or how at all is that is that possible that this becomes a driving motor, at least in my reading, in, in modern rationalism? And again, I'm 
I'm, I'm basically mimicking Hegel's, Hegel's, Hegel's account of modern rationalism. It begins with Luther, develops through Descartes, Kant, and ends with himself in a way. And what does predestination do as a, as a framework? Well, it is um, to give you to, to, to give a, a non non almost non philosophical answer to this. It allows you to avoid the idea that saying I don't believe in God is enough to get rid of God. Mm-hmm. Right? So so in a way, I, I take predestination to function as a kind of necessary screen or fantasy that we need to get to a point where 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 we cannot but assume responsibility um that would be that would be the 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 i think the the snippet answer i don't know if that makes sense in this short version uh so it's interesting if not please tell me sorry (laughs) oh no i shall i shall i shall but i think it's it's it it's interesting for a, a couple of reasons so one the the paradox uh, implied by that as in from the standard ideology of of freedom um the idea of arguing that predestination is or as even as a fantasy or a screen is necessary to get us to the idea of responsibility is 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 sort of exactly what the partisans of of freedom would reject as as incoherent they'd say no 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 as in it's only with the idea of freedom as capacity that that we mm. get that but um what really interests me about this um is uh it's it's actually the second question i was going to ask before as you mentioned uh calvin and you yeah. do you do mention him and and max weber as a protestant ethic in the spirit of capitalism and and while you were talking about this and and when reading this this section of the book i was thinking you know it's it, it's so fascinating to me the question of how from a protestant culture right from the the victory of protestantism and then through mm. you know anglo-american imperialism we mm. arrive at a culture like allegedly based on these protestant notions that ends yeah. up precisely with the ideology of freedom as a, as a capacity that that sort of perverse dialectical reversal is fascinating now i know um weber has an account on of this that stresses as you say calvinism rather than rather than lutheranism but if i understand it correctly calvinism also explicitly prohibits um the the idea of speculation on the divine economy except that if i remember correctly weber says but it's nonetheless maintained in something like he doesn't use this phrase obviously but a mode of fetishistic disavowal that that the bourgeoisie are not supposed to be able to speculate on who the elect are and who Mm. the damned are but de facto they look around and they go it's probably the people with the nice houses on the hill and not the guy living in the gutter and that's how you that's how the reversal takes place but i was wondering yeah whether whether you thought that was true or whether you had a theory of how we get from a culture that emphasizes predestination possibly as a screen for the accepting of responsibility and get out of that instead this real antithesis to that idea that the sort of neoliberal idea of, of freedom reigning over the planet yes um well 
it gets a tiny bit even more complicated because I mean there, I mean there's even a gap in Luther, right? <laughs> or a right, or right. a split in Luther. So I mean. He sides with the aristocracy, and he is an anti-Semite, right? I mean, that there yes, is yes. no a, doubt. About it. I mean, disgusting anti-Semite. Yes, he, he becomes a yes. horrible reactionary asshole. Um, Murder so, the peasants. The, the yes, whole, the thieving, murdering peasants. Yes. Thomas Munzer, all of that. Yeah. yeah. Yes, all that's it. So, um, so, so the the, the, the claim I, I <clears throat> or the idea. Well, my my explanation, maybe that's the the more moderate way of this, is there can be a kind of, and that I, I find that very convincing what you're saying that there is a kind of fetishistic disavowal implied in the predestination practice, because in a way, yes, you shouldn't speculate. So the speculation prohibition is upholding Calvinism, but at the same time, if you're well off, that's great. So, yeah. <laughs> so and and God that probably means, saved you. Yeah. Yes, precisely, and that, that kind of means that you're believing. I mean, this is turning Lutheranism into Erasmusism or whatever it would be, right? Um, yeah, yeah. But, uh, simply because you're saying, well, we use a, a similar assigned system, right? There is a a, a language, or a, there there is communication going on. Well, it's silent communication or hidden or whatever but nonetheless we can decipher stuff we shouldn't be we shouldn't be we we we, we should not be able to do that but or or at least we believe we are able to decipher things um and i think this this is um what the luther that i try to defend um, would absolutely, absolutely uh, prohibit. But the, yes. the, the moment you start to economize, even in a hidden or secret manner, with, um, with signs indicating your future salvationist status, everything is lost again, right? I mean, you re-Catholicize. And this is, this is this is basically my claim. You re-Catholicize Protestantism, right? Hmm. Um, in a way, I mean, you economize on a certain. You neglect. I, I sound as I just realized. I sound as if I were repeating Heidegger on that. But but you you <laughs> you once again um, get rid of the difference that um, uh, um, 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 makes it impossible to be. To be economically active in any in any 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 way, right? I mean, and then so so Calvinism. How how does it work to get from from the absolute prohibition? Um, and the I mean, the the beauty in Luther is because we will never know what God uh, has planned for us. We shouldn't give a fuck. Right. I mean, this yes. is Luther. Right. right. I mean, that's yes. that's yes. the that's why it's salvational. So we move from the inside that we're excremental and nothing in us um, uh, deserves any kind of salvation. Right. Whatever we do, we're just like pieces of shit uh, interacting with pieces of shit. So not whatever, nothing we can do um, uh, will will generate uh, the uh, any any let's say convincing motivation for God to to save us um, and grant eternal life. 
Uh, but because we don't know the rationality of God, and hence we will never be able to understand in what way he or she or it makes its decisions, we should just like not care at the same time, right? Um, now, Calvin, the Calvinists avoid that last and I think most radical, most radical consequence because they care all the time. They know yeah. they shouldn't, and this is why you're totally right. It's fetishistic as well. They know they shouldn't, but they care all the time. And hence, right, I mean, they constantly, they're, they're like permanent, um, like uh, permanently engaged in hermeneutic activity about their own salvation status. And sometimes, I guess, if you're Bill Gates or whatever, just satisfied. Um, but, hmm. but, 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 um, the, 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 the important thing is the indifference that is linked to accepting one's own excremental status in, in Luther, right? So predestination, what does predestination mean? It, 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 the, the, the doctrine of predestination and the prohibition to speculate about God's plan, it puts you in a position where you are, in a way, liberated, from the pressure pressure of the uh, big other. Does that make sense? So, right, I mean, you're otherwise you're constantly think what uh, um, trying to decipher what is he or she trying to do and what is uh, his or her plan with me. But 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 Luther is arguing precisely for a suspension of this this idea. Yeah, I I, I mean. This is this is really instructive, I I think, because your, I mean, your concern, even though we've we've obviously been been talking about theology, is is clearly not with theology and with with God per se. And when you no. when you put it in this way, both the accepting as one's status of uh, excrement and the liberating power of that uh, sounds like sounds like certain descriptions of of the purpose of psychoanalysis especially yes. as described by Zizek you, you also mentioned um, Eric Sansner uh, before uh, mm -hmm. working in a in a in a similar milieu and I was thinking do, do you see the liberation as something like uh, what the idea that Sansner describes I think in a number of his works as as a problem of the I mean is a, a theological term but uh, but he he re he translates it into a psychoanalytic register of the the problem of of the flesh and un, un, understood as something like all of these uh, attachments um, hopes desires maybe of the kind that keep you uh, oh, this is a tawdry way of putting this, but sort of plugged into the capitalist machine, right? That I that I go with 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 this this constant vacillation between hope and anxiety. Yeah, maybe one day I'm going to win the lottery or or get recognition and thus celebrity status and so forth. Constantly working, constantly uh, responsible, anxious about my sins and so forth. But there's some sort of uh, neg that happens because of because of um, the idea of predestination a uh, uh, de detachment from this this uh, order of historically generated social attachments uh, affective attachments is this 
Is this the sort of thing we're, we're talking about, Frank? I, I think so. Yes, I think so. Because in a way, um, what's the best way to put it? Um, um, yes. Well, on the, on the one hand side, let's say a Calvinist theory of predestination, there is always too much pressure, right? Because you always... Right. <laughs> I mean, and, and that too much pressure is systematic or structural because you you have to decipher signs, and it's very hard to identify what these signs are, right? <laughs> because you first have to identify the sign as a sign. So, is it great that the woman smiled at me? Uh, I got a free coffee. Is that a sign? Uh, is three million enough? <laughs> All right. I mean, I own half the country. Is that cool? Or Right, I mean, so it's very. It's not, it's, sir. It will keep you working more, right? Yes, it's never enough. Yeah. Yes, 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 precisely. Um, <clears throat> so, and 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 in in this in this very sense, I think you're 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 absolutely right. I mean, this is what what is, um, what is happening, and economized, um, or simply put, this is what economy is, right? I mean, um, if I. If I abbreviate too brutally what what Eric is saying, um, this is why the what what I what I am trying to bring out with Luther, and then I stop talking about theology. I promise, because <clears throat> because overall, this is not. A, I mean, this is not a theological proposal at all. No, no, but, no, no, uh, certainly not. But, yeah, but 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 I'm trying to understand the let's say the transition from. Um, religion as capitalism, which is Catholicism, right? Um, to capitalism as religion, to put it in Benjamin's terms, yeah. um, and the, and and these two are inseparable. I I, I assume. Um, so, why does Luther's um, traversal of the idea that God always had a plan for us, which we will never be able to know because we can't know God's motives and hence we should not give a fuck, liberate us from this um, traversal, uh, from, from, sorry, from, 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 from this danger or offer a different, why does it offer a different strategy? to what uh, Calvin is proposing and what Erasmus is proposing. I think because, um, well, I mean, you mentioned that book that I, that I, that I published, I think, uh, that I published only in German, Indifference and Repetition, right? And, and there, therein I try to argue for one very, very trivial thing, that the identification of freedom with a capacity is registered in modern philosophy from Descartes through Kant and so forth um, under one title, namely that of indifference. Um, mm. Let me give you a, a very, very, very trivial, trivial example of that. And please, then, please. Then, then hopefully you will see uh, that this makes sense. Um, Kant's um, in, the, in the preface to the first edition, of um, the critique of pure reason, basically says, well, before the critique of pure reason, so before his endeavor, there was not really philosophy. Why? Because there was only only some kind of theology. People 
were 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 claiming whatever they think, whatever they thought was correct. And then, what happened is people claimed, I don't know, God is a horse, freedom is blah blah blah, right? I mean, what whatever. And then the other contested it, and it it. it went on endlessly and at one point the skeptics appeared and basically said well this is all bullshit we shouldn't believe in anything and so forth but they be- but but this is Kant's point they believed in having the power to not believe and then and this is so 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 Kant is offering a kind of um genealogy i would say of the historical material conditions or discursive uh, conditions that enabled Kant to write the critique of pure reason. So, so all this happened. The skeptics appeared. They turned out to be just another form of dogmatists. And then something astounding happened, and Kant calls it, and this is why I'm telling the story, because this formulation is amazing. He calls it the mother of chaos and the night, huh. um, which is the coolest thing I think he has ever <laughs> Truly, put into uh, writing, and this is what he calls indifferentism. And indifferentism is the assumption that we could not give a fuck about things that uh, concern freedom. Right. So the, the 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 first sentence of the preface of the first version of the critique of purism reads um, that that reason is bothered, literally molested belestic wow. in German uh, by questions it cannot uh, 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 avoid. So, right, I mean, it constantly is, is there is a, I don't know if we could refer to Louis C.K. or if that is prohibited territory. Anyhow, but there is a oh, quite, <laughs> quite wonderful quite wonderful Louis C.K. joke about a kid constantly asking why, 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 and at one point he uh, sitting with him in a burger joint he has to say well shut the fuck up uh right i mean just because <laughs> it never it never stops and, and this is basically reason right i mean this is basically yes. kind, kind of saying reason is like a child um that constantly uh, that constantly says why 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 and at one point and this is where dogmatism begins people are just saying shut the fuck up god is a horse or something like that yeah right? yeah right, um, right, right. <clears throat> so so after an endlessly long period of time uh, where people were just dogmatically giving answers to the child that is reason, at one point um, people realized, this is what, why, why Kant calls it the mother of chaos and the night, um, that maybe there is an option that we couldn't give a fuck. <laughs> um, maybe there's an option that reason would basically become indifferent to the questions it cannot avoid. Hmm. Um, and indifferentism is this, this so something absolutely impossible for Kant, right? I mean, this is what I'm trying to say. So there are people uh, uh, appear on the historical scene that are basically saying, um, well, there are no answers to the questions of reason, why stuff is the way it is. So let's not care about it anymore. And Kant is basically saying, this is, on the one hand side, great, because um, it enables the critique of pure reason, hence an investigation into the very constitution of what rationality is. On the other hand side, it is the worst thing that ever happened. This is why it's 
the mother of chaos, um, because it makes people believe that reason is whatever you want to believe reason to be. Right. Yeah. Um, and so why am I telling you that? Because Kant says indifferentism. So people becoming indifferent to what they are. Right. Um, is the problem is the problem. This is something that Descartes formulated before. And what what is indifference? Indifference is the assumption that we have the freedom to do it this or that way. Right. So so there is a path that leads, I think, from a problematic notion of indifference, namely uh, the libertas indifferentia, as the, the Latin Latin folks call it. Right. I mean, to the, the, the freedom, the liberty to decide in this or that way to a indifference of another kind, which is um, uh, first represented by the Lutheran. Okay, I shouldn't give a fuck about God's plan because I can never, never say anything about it. And this this traversal is something you can't economize with. Sorry, very long answer. I don't think even I answered your question, but well, sorry. No, 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 no. That's that's really fascinating, actually. But my own response to that may may be a a, a little bit. Uh, 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 tangential and unhelpful, in which case, uh, sh- sh- uh, shut this down. So I haven't uh, uh, read your book on indifference and repetition because of my shitty German. But from what you know. uh, just just said, um, it it occurs to me that the the characterization of of skepticism makes me think of Hegel's characterization of of the skeptic of skepticism in the phenomenology just before the section on the unhappy consciousness where he he characterizes it, it, it interestingly as not as uh this sort of disaster that leads to well it, it actually it is a disaster but but not in terms of leading to a kind of supine nihilism or a uh, fatalistic accepting everything along the lines of luther's love god and do what you will but he says it it actually ends up being this vacillating consciousness mm. a, a bit like a bit like um um nietzsche's last last meant like it it won't actually follow through its own corrosive effects but will sort of linger with a dogma one day yeah and then give that up you know convert to catholicism out of boredom and then <laughs> vacillate over to hedonism again or, or or something like that and i think he would associate that with that um uh libertas indifference yeah the, the, yeah there's a link between but but you're talking about a different uh you're you if i understand you correctly you're making a, a distinction between that kind of skepticism and what it would mean to take the corrosive effects of skepticism further in in the name of in mm. the in the name of reason is is that is that right yeah well, I mean, you know that 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 Hegel calls the phenomenology. I mean, realized skepticism, right? Or complete right, right, right. Okay, right. Uh, yes, skepticism. Um, so, yes. Um, how to take that further? Um, because, and this has something to do with with the thing that I that I mentioned before with the what what I tried to describe in Luther as an on 
optical ontological difference, right? So I'm, right. I'm trying to basically say, um, okay, considering or taking freedom to be a capacity that is a natural given manifests in a symptom. What is that symptom? Indifference. Um, we're indifferent to the choices even while we're making the choices. Um, this is what, what not, not my claim, but what Kant and Descartes and others said. Um, so how to get rid of this is to radicalize indifference. Yeah. And the name for the radicalization of indifference that I assign is fatalism. The tools to do that is predestination. Um, right? So we get from the idea that we can indifferently, in, indifferently um, opt for A or B to an insight that there, that the world, everything, uh, the universe and so forth, doesn't give a shit. Literally, I mean, um, because we are kind of excrements that are not integrated in an overarching system. But just like, I don't know, um, um, a derailed elements in a way. Um, Kant does something, absolutely, let me, let me just like add one tiny anecdote. Oh, please. And you can, Kant does something absolutely astounding in, in his later work, at one point he, he says, well, well, in the early work like Critique of Pure Reason, he basically says, well, there is no option whatsoever that reason could be indifferent. It's Im impossible mm -hmm. because reason is totally, totally um, compelled to, this is what reason is. It, it wants to find out uh, the answers to the questions it cannot, cannot avoid. But later, in his in his life, he basically says, um, "Well, if there could be indifference and in reason, right, then um, human beings would regress um, to to animality." Right? Wow, um, we would just be like dogs or ants or. Buridan's ass, uh, which is a, <laughs> a anecdote I, I briefly refer to. You know that, right? I mean, the like not the the bottom, but the animal. Um, from from so, Spinoza. Uh, yes. Uh, from, sp sp uh, do you do you want to 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 uh, yeah the ass? Well, it's just, e it's just like an ass. Between. Yes, equidistant between two equally appealing heaps of hay, right? And um, the ass can't decide and dies, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the. And, and so Kant basically suggests that if there could be something like that, um, if, there, if there could be indifference in reason, if we could be indifferent about essential things, we would regress to the state of animals. Right? Um, now it's interesting because this trope that human beings can regress to the state of animals which in brackets we're actually are doing when we're talking about naturalistic accounts of human uh -huh. beings, I think, um, is what 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 people like Marx describe as an effect of capitalist economy, and yeah. what 
Alan, but you singled out as the defining feature of capitalism. Right? It treats every human being as if it were an animal. Right? This is biomaterialism, the stuff we talked about before. So, so we learn to live and think like pigs, as I believe. Precisely. Yes. At one point. Yes, precisely. Um, and there is just, again, in brackets, there is um, the guy who wrote the or edited the first first dictionary on Kant's work, a guy um, called Karl Christian Erhard Schmidt, like the cool Karl Schmidt. Right? <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> not a Nazi. Not a... <laughs> no, 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 yes, the, the non-Nazi Schmidt. Um, <clears throat> He wrote a book um, which is called Adiaphora, which addresses problems of indifference in Kant's, Kant's reason, uh, in Kant's understanding. No way. Wow. So he saw that indifference is the problem of Kantian philosophy. So he wrote something, I mean, I, I call it a critique of indifferent reason, basically. I mean, this is, this is the attempt, but trying to to argue and show why, on the one hand side, reason cannot be without cannot be without jeopardizing itself and hence abolishing itself, um, um, be indifferent to the questions it's molested by. Right? Um, and Schmidt, Schmidt believes. I mean, he's not amazing, but it's interesting that it's uh, it's a kind of symptom. I would say um, it's a kind of symptom that what Kant deemed impossible. Sometimes the impossible happens, and the Schmidt guy, who is a—I mean, he's the guy, for example, who taught Schiller Kantian philosophy, right? So, so um, um, I would so, not have known this if not for reading you. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, extraordinary. so yeah, no, no, but, but but it's kind of interesting that this guy uh, notices that indifference is a real problem because if if we can convince ourselves or be convinced that we cannot give a fuck about the questions we're molested by just because we're too lazy or there's some new cool stuff on Netflix or whatever, <laughs> um, right? This turns us into animals. And right now, and this is an important claim, not simply into animals that we were before, but into animals that are generated in the, in the act of that are produced, as it were, in the act of regressing to them. Right? It's not like we're just, I don't know, we're just bodies and then we are thinking and when we stop thinking, we just bodies and then, right? The, mm. the idea is the animals we're reduced to when we're indifferent are highly, highly hybrid and artificial entities. Right? This is what Marx will, will say endlessly many things about what kind of bodies we are when we are when we believe we're just animals, because we're basically not just animals. So it's a similar argument I'm trying to make than, than the one that, that, that Agamben makes uh, when he talks about bare life. Right? Bare right. life is not, not simply something that is always already foundationally there, but it's something that is produced. And I think there is a production, a production of animality, artificial animality, artificial naturality, um, that is linked to this understanding of freedom, um, um, that, that, um, yeah, maybe I stop there. No, okay. I, 
I want to re recapitulate uh, uh, slightly to get you to go more on in in this vein. So, it 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 strikes me that there's a that your argument uh, hinges on this this fascinating dialectical reversal, where on on the one hand you see uh, indifference as representing this state of constructed animality that it's it's a, a product of the capitalist order that it's it's created like in Agamben's uh, uh, the way bare life is created by uh, uh, the distinction that splits apart um, bare life from uh, uh, from form of life or uh, uh, to use a disturbingly Aristotelian uh, <laughs> phrase from 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 uh, bios but um, but it seems to me that you're also saying although this is this catastrophic result of of um, capitalism and consumerism and so forth that you're also suggesting that the exit from this is not a a simple return to reasons insistent demands as if that were a natural capacity or that rather uh, recovering reasons insistence demands this dimension of the possible requires a kind of carrying with indifference that there is a another use of indifference uh that you baptize under the name of of, of fatalism so it seems it's it, it it and in that sense also sort of speaking vaguely dialectically it seems to me that you think the 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 state of constructed animality which is a state of indifferent but it, of indifference but it also looks a lot like or manifests itself as uh uh, in some ways, an excess of interest in everything, that vacillating, um, um, anxious excess of interest in all sorts of things. So on the one hand, indifference is the catastrophe, but but if I understand you correctly, you're also suggesting there is this, as I say, use of indifference, tarrying with the indifference that is the way to combat our indifference in this second sense? Yeah, yeah so so in a way um and maybe this is um i can elucidate this by saying something about um how i think after after descartes and kant's uh, predestination or something like that works um because in a way um It is not. It is not the case that we simply can counter, and this is what already Kant and Descartes quite clearly saw: um, a certain state of indifference. And the the, the term of indifference um, already already pops up in in in, in Descartes actually, um, who problematizes it at one point uh, because he believes that um, when we're indifferent with regard to our decisions, we decide as if we're deciding, right? So we act on a I don't know on a on the basis of um that is that basically what we're doing is revisable right? um and just again in brackets descartes here is a nietzschean of on a letter because nietzsche quite quite clearly um indicated that the eternal return of the same is 
if it is read as an ethical principle, must mean that we should do whatever we do in a way that we would never revise it, right? Even if it's if it's wrong, right? But but so so it is an attempt to to give a uh, to provide a lens um, onto our own practice um, that allows us um, to avoid what what Descartes not explicitly but technically um, or latently implicitly would call as if decisions. So how do we get from as if decisions that are the embodiment of a shit conception of freedom and the shit conception of freedom is that freedom is something that I have in my power, right? That is something in my possession. That is something uh, that I own to a different practice of freedom by, and you're right, you're fully right in your, your description by endorsing another kind of indifference and the other kind of indifference. And this is, this is strategically, strategically and conceptually what predestination means, um, is, um, that we, in a way, I, I think one, uh, must work through the assumption that anything is in anyone's possession. Um, anyone has any kind of plan. Uh, and this is precisely what, 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 um, modern rationalism does so strangely strangely what you find in hegel for example um who describes the the who describes history and that is the manifestation of freedom right in a way as an a gigantic concatenation from which we 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 might be able to decipher God's plan. So the he he basically says in the uh, in the introduction to the philosophy of history that any philosophy of history has no other no other uh, purpose than to actually become a theodicy, um, basically to make us understand what God's plan is. So right now we move from. Luther, who claimed, well, there is a plan to, but we will never be able to know it, hence we shouldn't give a fuck, and this this kind of indifference, um, and to see how indifferent we are, right, that we're pieces of shit, is, uh, 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 um, um, has a salvational quality. Uh, it's liberate, liberating. We move from this position to a position where Hegel basically says, um, well, if we do want to understand what the manifestation of freedom is, this is history, right? I mean, that's the most trivial, trivial definition uh, ever, I think. So history is, if it's really history, the manifestation of freedom. So if we really want to understand what that is, um, we have to decipher, we have to do precisely what Luther claimed to be impossible, we have to decipher God's plan. And then 
Hegel's argument is that we see in 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 in, in through our rational attempts to do so that a it is totally important that we're trying to do so b um, because otherwise we don't understand anything about freedom b um, that there is no plan um, that things almost appear utterly contingent right. Um, almost Even necessarily contingent. Uh, yes, perhaps. yes, necessarily, necessarily contingent, because this expresses, this brings to the fore the 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 insight that a god that does not have a plan, which manifests in history, and history shows that that he or she doesn't have a plan, is not really God. And hence, in a strange way, it is just us, but we also don't have a plan. So it's not like God is one of us, but we are as fucked up as, or fucked <laughs> as God is. Right? So Genius. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. <laughs> You you talk about um, in your Hegel chapter uh, speaking of these sorts of motifs. I I, I believe you say something like, uh, you know, it, it's it's well known in Hegel that says uh, the movements of of of, of uh, I, I suppose you could say uh, uh, objective spirit, culture, and absolute spirit, religion, and and philosophy, and all of these things come only out of dissolution the dissolution of certain yeah. forms of life the yeah. owl of minerva uh, flies uh, at the onset of dusk and so forth and you have this this amazing line you you quote hegel saying you know uh, uh, the, the image of history as a, a slaughter bench mm -hmm. um, very interesting to juxtapose to this vision of a a, a conventional vision of a hegelian um, uh, theodicy, right? That he's mm -hmm. he's 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 making everything into into reason. But no, Hegel says history is a slaughter bench, and, and then you say it's also a slaughter bench of spirit. That spirit mm -hmm. is, in a sense, for Hegel, um, um, something like this perpetual dissolution. <coughs> so I'm I'm getting this sense <coughs> now that that part of your your thought is is something like uh we keep it, it it's incumbent on the rationalist sort of qua rationalist to maintain something like that uh speculative desire to to break the um lutheran and calvinist prohibition on speculating mm. on the economy but when that when you breach that, you don't do it in what you've called the economizing Catholic way, uh, which would, which is the form that most theodicies take of, oh, there must be some plan. But like rigorously speculating on it reveals the nullity of that plan, and and uh, thus thus uh, uh, suggesting the 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 link between reason and and fatalism. But the reason fatalism combination as a sort of condition for maybe not maybe not freedom but but for some sort of liberation yes i mean you, you know the the very trivial psychoanalytic description right that um okay 
kid is born. I think this is basic club launch, and I'm 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 reducing this um, um, to the to the utmost. But um, so baby is born. Um, life is horrible as always. But then, yeah. for the first time, a breast a breast interferes, right? And right. Um, the kid is basically thinking the baby, and this is already a retroactive fantasy that I'm that I'm using right now. The kid is basically thinking, "What the fuck? What is this? It's kind of pleasant, but what am I for her? Tell yes. me." Right. Tell me, mother, what am I for you? Yeah, yeah who and am I for the other? Yeah. Yes, and then it takes about, I don't know, 15, 20, 60, 140 years, <laughs> and you grow up, and you at one point you basically say, well, mommy, tell me, what am I for you? And then the disappointment is amazing because uh, she doesn't know, right? I mean, she's not even dishonest in saying, well, or she says something like, well, you're the love of my love and the reason why I stopped working and having a career. And But, but you're great, so I hope we... Uh, how long are you staying for? Or something like that, right? Right, right, right. So, so um, what, what I'm trying to say is the, the structurally, the thing that I'm trying to describe is um, how can one make this insight that the other of whom one supposes that he or she knows um, doesn't know. But there is no way, no way avoiding the assumption that the other knows, right? And that yeah. is just like, right? Um, how can one make that effective? And so, so what I'm trying to say is that, that predestination and all that um, is, is basically philosophies way of answering this question so what i'm trying to say is that um different from what i think certain lacanians or uh people working in psychoanalysis uh, uh, uh in psychoanalytic theory defend that there are resources um surprisingly in 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 precisely rationalist modern rationalist philosophy that, that actually allow to give a very elaborate answer that in a way um, is very compatible with psychoanalysis. Or put differently, I think, uh, but, but you at one point says, said um, that there is no contemporary philosophy which um, 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 does not stand up to the challenge uh, of Lacanian psychoanalysis. And I totally agree. And what I'm trying to say is, what would a Descartes, a Kant, and so forth look like that's up to that very challenge? So it's not like a post-Lacanian, but a pre-Lacanian, post-Lacanian kind of philosophy. That's astonishing. But still retaining its status as, as philosophy in, in, in this Baduian way, yes. like, like taking the anti-philosophy of psychoanalysis uh, seriously, very seriously, having to pass through it. Yes. But, um, but 
but retaining something like a, a oh, strangely Lutheran word, a, a vocation for, for yes. philosophy, having having Absolutely. been purified by psychoanalysis. Yeah. I mean, okay, Frank, um, getting late into the interview, this this might be my my final or or penultimate uh, question. There are so many so many things I'd like to continue to ask about, but this it seems like I I wanted to ask you something like. Um, I'm going to combine these questions into an unfortunate melange, but I wanted to ask you something like, what do you think is the major opposition uh, to the kind of realizations that we can get from psychoanalysis and and uh, this this uh, post-Lacanian? rationalism in this world what are what are the forces that are stacked against that and i wanted to embed that question with another one i wanted to ask you which is about uh the reception of of the book and how other people have responded um to the arguments that you've been making uh here here tonight um yeah well okay that well that well, one, um, I think an immediate and very spontaneous answer is, uh, well, indifference. <laughs> right? uh, God, no, the wrong um, kind of indifference, I suspect. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, this, this, I think, kind of happened. I mean, there have been people who were uh, kind enough, um, Andrew Kutrufello, Alenka Tsupancic, and others, um, to reply to the book and actually start a debate. And this, um, I mean, you, I think you can find this even um, on the, it's a bit, it's more hidden than one would suppose, uh, <laughs> su- supposedly assume, but um, 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 uh, d- there is something on the publisher's websites, uh, Nebraska University Press, they have a kind of blog and uh, there oh, they fantastic. kind of roasts, I would almost say, uh, roast uh, the the books and have just like guest guest people who resp- respond um, to the thing. And one of the one of the the I think most most um, uh, well there. There have been there has been a limited number of, of replies to this. Okay, uh, in part I understand this because it's uh, well I'm I'm making myself uh, numerously impossible um, uh, for endorsing a signifier that no one likes, uh, attacking people that everyone loves, and uh, mobilizing resources that sound horrible. Um, so, so I, I see that. Um, but, um, well, um, maybe, maybe, maybe the 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 one one way of answering, at least partially answering your question, and then you need to tell me if that is an answer or not, mm-hmm. um, is um, <clears throat> that I think one one of the things that uh, I would like to do with. With in the in the aftermath of some critical replies and some, let's say, I mean, Slavoj Žižek was one of the ones who endorsed the book most. I yes. think. Yes. Um, 
okay. So he he made quite a case, and I think I mean because because a lot of things that I'm defending are very close to what 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 Slavo is saying, and um, so I'm 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 presenting a myself a melange of um, I don't know. Uh, Hegelian, Baduian, Zizekian, Lutheran, whatever, right? I mean, that's a, like a potpourri, as the French will call it, in a hopefully kind of systematic way. Anyhow, so so um, <clears throat> one of the, the, the main obstacles in the reception of that book was precisely what I anticipated, namely, <clears throat> um, well, namely that people don't find it awfully sexy if you attack freedom um i mean I, I think this is this is literally literally true um and um um and in part because um well we talked about psychoanalysis and one of the things that even in 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 some of the contemporary debates about psychoanalysis and i'm i'm, I'm bracketing uh, the cool people from Australia and some cool people <laughs> from Ljubljana and so forth. But um, um, Freud, Freud defended an absolute psychic determinism, literally. Yes. I mean, yes. this is what he what he explicitly endorsed, because he believed if we don't believe in in absolute psychic determinism, um, <clears throat> we can't interpret shit at all, right? I mean, if things just happen contingently. Well, they just happen contingently, and yeah. how 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 would we, right? And then then any kind of mishap, um, <clears throat> um, uh, my friend Aaron Schuster once once told me this quite lovely joke, right? Um, you want to say one thing and then you say a mother, um, so any kind of mishap uh, of that kind uh, where you say a mother, even if you want to say something else. Um, um, remains opaque to you, but nonetheless, defending determinism sounds as if one is siding with the worst of natural sciences. Actually, yes, um, right, um, <clears throat> or with ridiculous people one wouldn't even talk to. So, so the I think the um, this this kind of maneuver um, um, makes makes the reception uh, of the book. Um, quite, quite, quite complicated, and I think something similar happened often in the reception of stuff that Zizek did, and in the reception of things that that Alain Badiou, Badiou, Badiou endorsed. I mean, I think it, things were generally even worse for for Slavoj, actually. But anyhow, um, so. Maybe I can just like add add a single 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 thing. Um, the the thing I would like to do right now is to link, and maybe this is not a direct answer, but uh, an implicit way of responding to what you the question you raised um, to link this theory of fatalism to a theory of courage, um, ah. because. Um, um, Adorno, I think Adorno once said at one point um, somewhere, I think in a philosophical um, terminology, that the history of philosophy is filled with concepts and problems that people have just forgotten. Yes. So for a long period of time, 
people talked about X, Y, Z, and then just like they stop and then it disappeared. Um, and and he's implicitly there suggests that it's maybe sometimes worth uh, worthwhile um, writing writing a history of philosophy from these forgotten and uh, obliviated problems. So I, I noticed one thing. Um, Heidegger is one of the last thinkers who has a full-blown theory of courage, and then something happens. You don't find... And, it, and courage is one of the main concepts and categories um, of any kind of ethical thought in, in, within the Greek cosmos. I mean, think of Plato, right? Politeia, but also the, 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 the this, I forgot the title, the, 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 the courage. Uh, there is one, one, what's it? Oh, the Lachis, the dialogue. Ah, the Lachis, yeah, yeah. Yes, precisely. So where they talk about Lachis, because we're, they're talking about education, right? Yes, uh, oh, always, as, as our friend A.J. Yes. Bartlett would say. Yes, yes. precisely. Yes. <laughs> so, um, and then, I mean, super, super crucial to the virtue of all virtues in Aristotle and shit, right? Yes. So, so but then how, how can a concept like this more or less disappear? Of, of course, you find it, you kind of find it in Badiou. Yes. Um, you kind of find it in Zizek. You kind of find it in Lacan. You kind of find it, but you kind of find it only, right? I mean, it's not... Um, so, um, and you don't find it at all in all these pragmatist philosophers we were oh, talking about not. earlier, right? Because they mm. are not for courage, even if they're if they're for virtue, they are not for courage. And um, my my my, okay, three more sentences, then I'm done. I promise. <laughs> uh, um, um, the my 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 intuition is that because courage has something to do with anxiety. Uh, yes, and fatalism produces an anxiety. These, this, there, there is a systematic connection. Um, so what I'm trying to say is um, that when Hegel says, "Without the courage to think, there is no philosophy," this courage is actually a kind of courage um, that is uh, constitutive for. Assuming a fatalist position that one needs to assume to, or to 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 to, to criticize um, a problematic problematic understanding of freedom, and that all this I I know that all this um, um, doesn't have an immediate appeal to people, and uh, I think the the obstacles are either institutional or whatever. Um, um, so so. Yeah. Okay. I'm meandering. Sorry. Uh, let me let me let me let me stop here. Does that make any sense? What I was trying to say. Yes. Certainly. Not... I, 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 no, no. I I I <laughs> um I You're too can't kind. help <laughs> thinking. I I can't help thinking uh, that uh, Badiou is someone who links uh, courage with with anxiety in theory of yeah. the subject. The the yeah. courage justice versus yes. uh, uh, super ego anxiety couple and and their yeah. their strange uh, uh, tr transformations. But I see you, you, the. It, it, I think perhaps um, uh, when you say that that 
Zizek, I mean, there are various reasons Zizek has been uh, uh, given a, a, a hard time of, of late, but I think uh, without going into those, the, the, his, his perceived uh, quietism from mm. talking about Bartleby and so forth. I think there is something about uh, speaking of of fatalism that makes people uh, immediately, um, uh, yeah, it, as you say, link it with with biological determinists and 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 so forth, or or, or it has a, a bad odor on the left. But I think you're I think you're right to say as as well as the. Uh, sources that we've that you mentioned Lacan and Badiou and and Zizek that there's a a very uh long uh history of linking uh uh, courage uh and and fatalism of them not being mutually exclusive as in as in as you said courage courage is a a a virtue for, for various Greeks but within what is basically a cosmos ruled by fate um yeah so fuck fuck that that it's perhaps only symptomatic of whatever uh i'm taking your term sort of perverse uh crypto catholic form of liberalism (laughs) catholic in in your specific terms that we have that that sees courage and uh, and responsibility as mutually exclusive with with fatalism but you may be yeah uh reaching back into the tradition and retrieving uh, uh something uh wrongly abandoned by by uh our own epoch do you do you, what do you, if i asked you just just this is sort of a, a repetition of my last of, of a previous question but as a as a final question if if you had to try and name what was at the root of this it's it's not so much the ideology itself but the but what causes the ideology of freedom of and, and capacity to be so all encompassing and ubiquitous what what do you think is the the origin of that in our in our time maybe maybe materially or politically how does how did it come to exert such a stranglehold on our way of thinking such that your way of thinking is is a source of such great indifference well, in a in a way, I think I I would um, say there is a difference not dialectic of enlightenment, but a but a dialectic of reason. Um, even though that makes me sound like Sartre, but I don't um, <laughs> uh, don't 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 want to go there because in a way, and I think Hegel is the the. Um, the one who registers registered it, it, it best because he indicates quite clearly that reason often does not follow what is reasonable. And reason has a very reasonable insight or rational insight even into the very structures of reason and does not follow that very insight. So even though reason understands that its foundation are quite loose and so forth. Um, in the fatalism book, I'm trying to say that the 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 culmination of fatalism um, is actually that the insight that there is no there is, right? So there that there is nothing we can per se rely on. There is no fundament and so forth. Um, but this very structure. Namely, the structure that a rational insight 
is n- not something, and this is why I, I, I told you the story with, with Kant and the indifferentists and so forth, because Kant registers, well, reason works like that, but then there are people who are rational creatures who don't follow reason. How the, how the hell is that possible? Mm. Because, right, I mean, so in a sense, um, reason generates insights, for example, that freedom is not a capacity. And at the same time, reason, rationality is very open to avoiding, um, and this has something to do with the with the fetishistic disavowal structure, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, uh, not to f- practically follow on its own knowledge, right? And hence there is, and this is maybe this is a a good way of closing our conversation. Which is why the the fatalism I defend is not a tragic or whatever fatalism, but it's a comic yes. fatalism, right? Yes. So so um, and and that is quite crucial to me because um, I'm not endorsing uh, a fatalism. Let me put it like that: with fate, mm. but a fatalism without fate, if that were uh, a, a distinction, which is by itself and in itself a quite contradictory contradictory kind of thing which i think is very 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 structurally um um apt to say to as a as an ethical orientation with regard when it or against the background of the very structure and constitution of reason or rationality itself so you see what what I'm trying to say is rationality is constituted in such a way that it makes itself um, um, that 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 there is nothing in 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 reason and rationality which would which could work as a defense mechanism against uh, the, the kind of shitty exploitation that I name Aristotelianism. Hmm. Um, Right. So, um, which is why, in, in in a way, this is why I insisted on the ideology critique part of it. It's an ideology critique of reason upon reason itself against a natural tendency of reason to ignore what is most rational. Yes. So reason has to be humiliated in 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 this sense, like yes. like God in in Hegel, in order to in order to be restore to itself yeah precisely yes yeah yes so the abolishment of reason by means of reason in a way is the only way to affirm reason um reason's own 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 existence in a way because otherwise reason just like annihilates itself automatically right so um in a way there is a there is a problematic way of 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 reason annihilating itself and another this is this is a magnificent um, place, I think, to end, Frank. We have abolished freedom. We have <laughs> annihilated reason. Uh, it's um, I don't know what perverse uh, things uh, this says about me, but this conversation has been uh, a pure joy uh, for me, Frank. I, I have no doubt it will also be for our, our listeners, whoever they may be, um, um, shit from the anus of the devil, like like all of us. Um, but it's been a real delight to be your accomplice in ruination this evening. Thank you so much, Frank Ruder.
Thanks. Thanks. That was um, enjoyable in so numerous ways. I don't even know how to say it. <laughs> Magnificent. All right. Thank you, Frank. Oh, what if God was-